Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Vine for August 4th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Well, tonight we're excited to have Tom Jensen as our guest here in about 20 minutes. Uh, but until then, we're going to discuss some other topics. We kind of had some things planned out, and then yesterday happened. And um, we've had these discussions way too many times on this show, um, but the events of yesterday in both El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, um, really just, I guess, are just have too much attention not to discuss. Um, as sad as it is that it was 20 people uh, have now passed away in El Paso, and I believe nine in Dayton, and there's more that are injured, and hopefully every one of those people pull through. Um, you, you know, it's still that's a horrific loss of life senselessly that, that you know shouldn't have happened. Then you add to the fact that you know, in one case, people were just doing something as pedestrian and as ordinary as just doing their Saturday shopping, uh, you know, at a local Walmart. And then you add on to the fact that in the case of El Paso, um, the gunman is see his motivation seemed to have been that he wanted to get even with Latino um, people, people from Mexico. Um, and that was, you know, appears to be from things they've read uh, that he's written. That was his motivation for targeting El Paso on that Saturday. Um, and so you have to tie into a lot of the rhetoric we've had around the wall and um, immigration and everything else um, has, you know, Donald Trump and others rhetoric kind of um, led to motivation for this, you know, depraved individual. Um, Catherine, I know you probably agree that we have to talk about this too much, but kind of share your thoughts. Well, it's just so tragic. It, it, you know, people, like you said, doing their grocery shopping uh, at a, uh, he drove 600 miles to, um, this very specific Walmart, apparently, that is, you can see Mexico from the Walmart. Um, it's right on the border. It's very popular in the Latino community. Uh, and it was, you know, Saturday afternoon, I guess. They said there were a, about a thousand people in the store, which seems like a lot of people in a, in a Walmart. But, you know, but anyway, it, it's just tragic. And, um, I think it's indicative of just a really divisive uh, rhetoric that comes from, you know, from leadership in, from, I mean, from the administration, as well as some, come from some of the um, news and entertainment uh, networks, both uh, television and radio. And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, you know, President Trump's 
fault, but I think that his rhetoric and his sort of constant drumbeat of, 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 you know, hate about, especially around immigrants, is, does give these uh, mentally unstable people uh, some kind of inspiration to uh, carry out these horrible shootings. So I, I, it's just very, very sad and uh, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Well, we have talked about this a lot. We've talked about the profiles that these shooters fit about, you know, the young white males, the lone wolf types, some of them that get radicalized on the Internet and why and uh, who inspires them to go do what they do uh, when they look at the actions or the inflammatory rhetoric of some, you know, either in the media or political leadership. And we know that these people, because of our lax laws, have easy and mostly legal access to assault-type weapons that can inflict a lot of damage in a very short time span, as, as we've seen, um, sometimes mental health issues do overlap the other personal things that are going on, including political ideology. And look, we, we, we know what needs to be done to address this. We, we, we've talked about that a lot, and we also know, to be honest, that none of it will be done as things now stand. I, I, I personally, as I've told you before, gave up on hopes of any of that back in December of 2012, and you both know what happened then. And uh, all the stats I can muster about guns and who owns them and how, how to get them and where they're at and this and that and the other, that it's not going to change anything either. There's one thing and one thing only that will change things. The, the, the voters of this country will have to punish those in public office who refuse to make the necessary changes by voting them out of office in mass. So far... That has not occurred in any way, shape, or meaningful form, except in a very isolated race or two that we know about. And if it doesn't occur, then we should be expecting more of the same, because more of the same is exactly what we're going to get and as long as one of our major political parties is pretty much, dare I say, bought off or frightened off by the money, that's a better way to put it, frightened off by the money that can be thrown at them in political races, then nothing's going to happen and as we've heard the rhetoric today, we 
have one side saying one thing, the things that I think need to be said, and the other side pretty much with the exception of one lone statewide politician, (laughs) interestingly enough, by the name of Bush, uh, they're, they're saying another thing. So there we are. The other yes. thing I just wanted to mention is that, you know, they talk about the the pro-gun people talk about how if everybody has guns, then people are going to be afraid and they're, you know, it's going to be a, um, it's going to help people not use their guns. Well, Texas is an open carry and um, I think they're open carry and uh, whatever you call it, enclosed carry, it's not what it's called, um, Anyway, and the Walmart is an open carry. That Walmart is an open carry. So that guy knew there could be people in a, in that store with guns, and it didn't stop him. Right. You know, when your hands are on your card, it's hard to have them on your gun, even if you had one. I mean, you're doing, going around doing your business, shopping, and everything else that everybody does in every other situation that, that we've had one of these. Uh, and, Tim, I think you're right. I mean, what's going to get done? Because if after they shot young school children at Sandy Hook and they shot concert goers in mass in Las Vegas from how many stories up so far away where no one with any gun on them could have possibly returned fire in that situation, and they did nothing when they shot the older students in, um, you know, Florida – then why is this going to be different? Um, sadly enough, I mean, it's just, it, we're just getting immune to it. it. These things have been in the thousands. We're not New Zealand where something happens and we take action. Um, you know, I, I was shocked when I looked on Political Wire a little bit ago. It said um, Donald Trump cl- uh, claims a state of emergency on the city of Baltimore. And you're like, what? You know, if he somehow, and I don't think, El Paso and and Dayton needed a state of emergency, but these two tragedies happened in these two American cities, and he's focused on some nonsense he created the week before in a totally different city. I mean, can you get any more tone deaf than that? Tim, I'll let you go. go ahead. I think you're about to say something, too. Well, Trump, you, you know I saw his chief of staff on Meet the Press oh, this yeah. morning. And he was just talking as as if as if he were in another world. I mean, he just totally total denial. Nothing is the president's fault. The president's doing a great job. The president can't be blamed for this. I don't blame. Uh, so-and-so if there's a shooting, and I don't blame another so-and-so if there's another shooting, and I just don't like the rhetoric you people are talking. How can you blame the president? You know, there's one president, you know, uh, uh, not to be compared to anyone else. Uh, the, the, The president has a certain job to do. This president is not doing that, of course, He's inflaming the situation by issuing this fiery rhetoric that no president in the history of this 
country, for crying out loud, has ever delivered. He just goes out and he says anything he feels, and, and he tweets like a a spoiled little high school kid or something, and it's just sickening. And, of course, certain individuals are going to take that as their go-ahead to go defend their president. I mean, good grief, that kid in Texas drove a 1,000 miles for the express purpose of finding a soft target where he could shoot as many Hispanic people as he could shoot. Who who did they think inspired him to do that when he was bragging on Trump? When he was bragging on white nationalists, and yes, Trump is a white nationalist. Oh, Stephen yeah, Miller and Bannon. Yeah, Stephen Miller and Bannon and those guys haven't been hanging around Trump for no reason. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, basically, there's been one um, gun policy during the Trump administration thus far, and that was the legalization of silencers. So that's somebody <laughs> that's not seeing the problem. He just did what little Don told him to there. Uh, legalizing silencers because I believe Will Don invest in them and he can make a buck. Even though the only reason you would ever want a silencer is going to commit crimes and not let anybody know about it. Um, that right. it's just bizarre. And that you and Tim, you mentioned George P. Bush. Kudos to him for calling out Donald Trump on his statements targeted towards Latinos, but he still did not say anything about the guns. So he had to have the had the he didn't have the courage to speak out against the guns, which, you know, maybe you, you bring down the rhetoric where people aren't targeting people of another race for that reason. But if they're still shooting people without, you know, racist hate in their heart, they're still shooting people, and that's no good. Um, Catherine, can, can, kind of take the final thought on this. Well, so we have to, you know, the, we we just have to vote out the people who won't, you know, pass these laws and vote in people who, who are strong on uh, revising our gun policies. But I don't know how, uh, how successful we'll be. Yeah, I mean, we'll see some polls and see what happens. I guess uh, Lucy McVass' election in Georgia uh, 6 might be an indicator of, of some of that since that was her signature issue there may be more folks like that um that, that speak up in um swing districts well let's move over to the debates and we had a two nights of debate this week uh a and b but they were pretty evenly divided with some you know strong contenders on both nights uh tim kind of give us your opening thoughts i guess on both nights together both nights together, huh? Well, well I mean, the like, first you know, night. you don't have to do just night one or just night two. Um, you can kind of, you know, you can pick and choose between either night. That's why I should set it. My bad. Well, <laughs> let's go the first night because it was the first night. <laughs> the first okay. night debate really had no huge breakout moment, I would say. 
the most memorable line probably was delivered by Bernie Sanders, uh, one that all the pundits have been smiling and repeating. You know, I, I wrote that down, Bill. Uh, well, that was probably the most memorable line uh, of the first night. And, and both Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think, successfully fended off attacks from some of the more moderate candidates on the stage who who really peppered him with some stuff. Uh, Warren, uh, especially, continues to show an excellent grasp of the issues, and, and she's impressed, impressed a lot of folks, I guess, with, with her general knowledge. I, I, I think she has somewhat seized the liberal wing of the party a little bit from Bernie Sanders. I think she won the night edging out Sanders. There's the first night. Next. Okay. <laughs> Catherine, um, I heard somebody after the debate say Bernie Sanders wants to lead the revolution. Uh, Elizabeth Warren wants to lead America. And if you looked at the way they both kind of defended a little more the left flank, I see what they meant. Bernie was a little more angry in his responses. Uh, Elizabeth Warren may have been more impassioned, if you will, and I saw that um, dynamic play out. Um, What do you think? Well, I agree um, that I thought – I think that's a good um, analysis that Bernie wants to be the, you know, revolutionary and uh, Elizabeth Warren wants to be a leader. And I thought she was very – I thought she grasped the stage very strongly it's interesting i thought the um my favorite point of the night was when she like put up her hands and said wait a minute we're democrats and we're not going to take health care away from anyone we just have different views on how to do this and i I felt like she was like and and david you can probably i felt like she was acting like the principal like (laughs) okay you guys like settle down um i i will say that the two people that surprised me were Tulsi Gabbard. I thought she was, I'm, I'm not a big fan of hers, but I thought she did a good job of being, she was very poised, very serious. And she talked about leadership, which I think is really important and something that we're all sort of grasping for. And I thought that was really smart of her to use uh, that as a sort of recurring commentary one of her of her um comments for the evening and i thought it was i mean i I, i'm a i'm a kamala harris fan but i thought it was good for her or not not was tulsi gabbard the second night she was tulsi gabbard was the second night and she did attack kamala harris she mentioned kamala harris which that's kind of how you got the back and forth I'm sorry. I was I I got a little confused there with there's so many candidates. So Marianne Williamson was the first night. Is that right? She was. Okay. So I thought, you know, I know she's wacky and I know that she'll never be president, but I think that she talks about things in a very direct way. She did that night. A very direct way that things that we don't really want to talk about. And I I kind of admire that. And I think that um, it's a helpful, uh, I think it's helpful 
to talk directly about like reparations and health care. And I mean, we can all laugh at this dark and sinister side of our government, but let's be frank, it's there. There is a dark and sinister side. There are uh, dark forces that are controlling things, corporations and, and organizations like the NRA, the pharmaceutical companies, who do have undue uh, influence. And so while I, I know it sounds goofy, but I think it's a little bit helpful to have someone say those things. Because nobody else is going to say it because it sounds crazy. So, Well, uh, and, and I said this kind of to y'all in a text while the second night was going on, and, and I mentioned Tulsi Gabbard, and I think John Delaney kind of fits in there too. Some of the people who had the best debate were those that debated like they had nothing to lose. You know, I, I mean, what was Kamala Harris a little tighter than last time because she's kind of moved up some? Maybe so. Uh, Mayor Pete, he may knows he's – you know, his momentum has started to stall a little bit. Um, Joe Biden, you know, he's he's got something to lose. But all these folks like Tulsi Gabbard and John Delaney that are far back, uh, they could just say what they wanted to because they're at, you know, 0.1% in the polls. Um, but speaking of the polls and 0.1%, he's way higher than that with us. Um, from public policy <laughs> polling, a, a regular friend of the show, Mr. Tom Jensen. Welcome, Tom. Hey, good to be with you all. Oh, good to have Hi, you. Tom. No, we, yeah. Um, Tom, you were in the, the Peach State at least yesterday. Are you still with us? Uh, no, I'm back in North Carolina now, but I was glad to be uh, down in the all state for a couple days. All right. Well, um, we'll just kind of talk about all kind of states because we know y'all have been really, really busy with a lot of polling. And I'm going to start in the Peach State, and then we're going to pass it around and, and cover some more of these polls. Um, but you did a poll talking about, in particular, how uh, North Carolina and Georgia, uh, most likely in the South, there's there's kind of a southern path to victory. And you had some interesting findings that, you know, North Carolina could go back in the Democratic column after, I guess, being in in 2008 and then out in 2012 and 16. And then Georgia could be in with that same group of, uh, you know, Arizona and Texas, those big red states that could move over to the blue column for the first time in quite a while. Uh, tell us about that, that kind of combo poll. Sure. I mean, uh, it seems like the media is mostly focused, uh, as they like to be, on the Midwest as sort of being the key to uh, Democrats winning the presidency next year. Uh, but the reality is that those Midwestern states are really trending in a different way than the southern states. You think about uh, for instance, uh, Ohio uh, voted in 2008 for Barack Obama by three points, uh, voted in 2016 for Donald Trump by eight points. So it got 11 points more Republican from 2008 to 2016. Uh, Georgia, on the other hand, uh, voted for John McCain by five points in 2008 and voted for Donald Trump by five points in 2016. So it stayed the same while a state like Ohio was getting 11 points worse. And you could make that same comparison for a lot of Midwestern states. Wisconsin voted 14 points more Republican in 2016 than it did in 2008. Michigan voted 16 points more Republican in 2016 than it did in 2008. All of that just sort of a lead up to you know, pointing out the fact that while the Midwest is getting more and more Republican – 
uh, the South is sort of headed in a different direction. So as you noted on this poll, uh, we found that Donald Trump is unpopular in both Georgia and North Carolina. In Georgia, he has a 45% approval rating, 49% of voters disapprove of the job he's doing. Uh, and in North Carolina, 46% approve and 48% disapprove. Uh, and we found that when you test Trump against a generic Democrat in these two southern states, he trails a generic Democrat 50 to 46 in Georgia, and he trails a generic Democrat 49 to 44 in North Carolina. Uh, so you look at those numbers, and you can really see a path uh, for Democrats to win the White House next year uh, that goes to the South as opposed to the one that gets talked about so much more that uh, goes to the Midwest. Yes. Now, when you did that poll, did you happen to poll um, the Senate race by any chance? Uh, we have done some polling on the Senate race uh, several times here over the last month, and we have found that uh, a generic uh, Democratic candidate trails David Perdue by about three points uh, for reelection. But I'm glad you asked about the Senate race because – uh, first of all, I think it is very much potentially competitive. Uh, David Perdue, you know, people like him okay, but he's certainly not overwhelmingly popular. Uh, uh, and then I'll quickly talk about the North Carolina Senate race and then sort of tie these two together about how important they are. Uh, we have found that in the North Carolina Senate race, Cal Cunningham, who is the most likely Democratic nominee, right now has a one-point lead over the uh, Republican incumbent Tom Tillis. Tom Tillis is quite unpopular in North Carolina. Only about 25% of voters approve of the job he's doing, about 50% disapprove, uh, and he could even be vulnerable in a primary next year. Right now we find that he's only up about 40 to 30 uh, against his Republican primary challenger, Garland Tucker. Uh, so you sort of look at the U.S. Senate right now. Uh, Republicans have a 53 to 47 advantage. Uh, just to be honest about it, it's going to be hard for Doug Jones to hang on in Alabama next year. Uh, obviously, a state that voted for Trump by 27 points. Uh, Roy Moore was a, a terrible opponent against Doug Jones, and that was how Democrats were able to win it. But if it's not Roy Moore again, Republicans are probably going to get it back. So. Uh, that makes it 54 to 46 for Republicans. But Democrats are almost definitely going to win the Senate race in Colorado, a state that's become more and more reliably Democratic. So that gets the Senate to 53 to 47. Uh, Martha McSally lost a Senate race in Arizona last year, uh, and now she's running for reelection against uh, Mark Kelly, uh, Gabrielle Giffords' husband, an accomplished astronaut. In a state that, as you noted earlier, is trending more and more Democratic, I think there's a pretty good chance for Democrats to win that Senate seat, so that gets to 52 to 48 Republicans. Uh, Cal Cunningham already has a small lead over Tom Tillis. It's certainly not going to be an easy uh, race by any means, but I think there's a good chance for Democrats there, so that would get it to 51 to 49 Republicans. So then for Democrats to get control of the U.S. Senate after those four seats play out that way – they need to win the presidency, which I think is going to happen. So you'd have the vice president, Democratic vice president, uh, breaking the ties. Uh, and then you have to win one more Senate seat. And I think that Georgia, uh, in some ways, is the place where it's most likely that Democrats could possibly do that. 
there's basically four places where I would see Democrats as uh, having the best chance of getting that uh, 50th Senate seat, and that's Georgia, Texas, Iowa, and Maine. So you look at Georgia, Texas, Iowa. Uh, Donald Trump won Texas by nine points in 2016. Donald Trump won Iowa by nine points in 2016. He only won Georgia by five points in 2016. So Georgia sort of looks more encouraging than those just based on the general uh, political breakdown of the state. Uh, And then Maine, you would think on paper, would be the best chance for Democrats as a state that voted for Hillary Clinton. But still to this day, about 20 percent of Democratic-leaning voters in Maine say that they would vote for Susan Collins. So where David Perdue in Georgia is only up by three or four points against a generic Democratic candidate, Susan Collins is still up by eight or nine points against a generic Democratic candidate. So I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that the key to Democrats getting control of the Senate could be the ability to win the Georgia Senate race. All right. Uh, Quite a lot of analysis there. We're going to go deeper on a lot of the states. Let me ask just one more question before I pass it to Tim, and that would be you did a Medicaid expansion poll on – Pretty much a lot of the southern states, and it really was interesting how a state like uh, Louisiana, which is uh, you know fairly Republican at this point, at least on the federal level, had more Medicaid expansion um, positivity. And then, of course, there's some usual suspects like Alabama, I believe, was the least um, interested in expanding, although it had a, a net positive rating. So kind of just tell us about the southern states that have been more Republican taking this pro-democratic position yeah it really is sort of uh remarkable the extent to which uh really a lot of voters across party lines support medicaid expansion there's so many issues these days where uh if democrats all think one thing republicans all think the opposite or if republicans all think one thing democrats all think the opposite and medicaid expansion is an issue that really sort of breaks the mold on that Uh, We find that certainly Democratic-leaning voters are pretty universally in support of Medicaid expansion, Uh, but you even get about a third of Trump voters who are in support of Medicaid expansion too. There's a lot of voters who otherwise like Trump who also still think that uh, more people should be able to get health insurance through the Medicaid program. Uh, And as you noted, uh, every single one of those states, we found strong majority support for Medicaid expansion. And that's maybe not very surprising in a state like North Carolina that voted for Trump by four, Georgia that voted for Trump by five. But you also find that really strong uh, support for Medicaid expansion, even in states like Alabama that voted for Trump by 27, Tennessee that voted for Trump by 26, Louisiana that voted for Trump by 20, Mississippi that voted for uh, Trump by 18. So uh, it really is something that sort of brings voters together to a greater extent than most things that we see in this uh, political climate. Yes. I'm going to pass it on to Tim for uh, other polls y'all have done recently. Tim? Hey, Tom. How are you doing, sir? Good. I'd I'd do better if I could have torn you away from everyday life to come see the Braves walk off the rest last night. Boy, you I know you're busy. You picked the only weekend that I really was slammed, including yesterday when I actually was in Atlanta for a while. But, of course, you know where I was at, and 
<laughs> I was with other people there, so I was in and out and just uh, I would have loved to have done a ball game. You would have enjoyed listening to me, uh, uh, shall we say, utter colorful metaphors about our new closer. But anyway, that being – Well, Atlanta is <laughs> apparently where good relievers go to die. <laughs> yeah, really. But anyway, um, in recent polling, you said that voters are more interested in health care and taxes, for instance, than they are in what's going on with Trump and Russia and that investigation. And yet your polling clearly shows that a large plurality of respondents feel that Trump basically broke the law. So why the disconnect uh, between what voters feel is important as an issue? Well, I think uh, the the I think the thing with the Mueller investigation is that even if people think that Trump did break laws or whatever, they don't care. His supporters, uh, the Mueller investigation is really something more so than just about any other issue where we've seen that people are not really open to having their mind changed by any sort of new information. It's basically if you like Trump. Uh, you don't think he did anything wrong or that if he did anything, it was fine, that there was nothing uh, wrong with what he did. If you don't like Trump, then obviously you feel the opposite of that way, that you know he did do very bad things and he should be impeached and that sort of thing. Uh, but what has sort of been remarkable is that we have a, a set of questions that we've been asking repeatedly uh, on polls about these issues, and no matter what new developments there are in the news – People almost never change their mind about anything related to Trump and the Mueller investigation. Uh, the Mueller report came out. Everyone's opinion stayed the same. Mueller testified in Congress. Everyone's opinions stayed the same. One thing I thought was uh, particularly amazing was – this was a couple years ago now, but when Donald Trump Jr. admitted that he met with uh, sort of an emissary from the Russians, we asked people – a straight-up factual question on a poll, do you think that Donald Trump Jr. met with this person? And most Trump voters said they didn't believe that he did, even though he had admitted that he did on Twitter. Uh, so that shows you the extent to which basically anything about the Mueller investigation sort of just gets put into this uh, filter of being fake news uh, and just doesn't even get paid attention to. So uh, you know, I think it's it's really – it's hard for me to imagine what would happen that would actually really move people's opinions on this. At the same time, it should be noted that Watergate was really like this, where nothing changed anyone's mind and nothing changed anyone's mind, and then finally something did really change everyone's mind. Could part of it also be just in this particular instance that you gave that something like health care and taxes is something that people feel – uh, di directly affects them more personally, especially in the pocketbook. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, that the issues that people care about the most are the issues that affect them the most directly. Uh, and certainly the, the Mueller investigation is sort of a more esoteric uh, kind of issue, whereas people really are 
uh, very directly affected by the health care issue. We find, for instance, in a state like Georgia that education is the second most important issue, and most people are touched by education one way or the other. Uh, so it definitely is those sort of things that can have the potential to really impact people in their everyday lives uh, that sort of rise to the top of the list in terms of what people care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, another poll that you folks have done in recent months that I thought was very interesting is that you show Democrats uh, by 11 points on the generic congressional ballot. That's a large amount. But after such a massive swing in 2018, is there really any low-hanging fruit left out there? I mean, is it a possibility, especially because of intense gerrymandering, that the Democrats could, say, win the uh, congressional races by high single digits or around 10 points next year, but not really pick up that many seats because there are not that many competitive seats. Or or am I off base here? No, I don't think you're off base. I mean, one thing about how well the Democrats ended up doing last year, because, I mean, let's remember, I think people were expecting Democrats to get control of the House, but they were thinking that Democrats might pick up like 30 seats and have a narrow majority, and of course they ended up picking up more than 40 seats and having a pretty healthy majority. So one simple, I think, good reality of winning most of the toss-up races is that you don't end up with that many more uh, toss-up races left on the table. Uh, That said, there are opportunities for Democrats to play offense. There's still uh, three House districts that voted for Hillary Clinton that Democrats didn't win last year, and of course one of those uh, in Texas's 23rd congressional district opened up this week with uh, Will Hurd retiring. He won by less than a point uh, last year, even though he was an unusually popular Republican. So I think that that's when Democrats are probably going to pick up. Democrats will have a good chance to pick up Pennsylvania's first congressional district and New York's 24th congressional district where the Republican incumbents were able to hold on last year uh, because the Democratic candidates weren't very strong, but they are the kind of places that uh, Democrats would probably win with a better candidate. I think the other thing to really watch for in terms of Democrats having the opportunity to play offense on the House map next year uh, is districts uh, where the population is really sort of shifting and becoming more open to voting for Democratic candidates maybe than it had been in the past. One that I think is a great example of that, uh, where it already flipped Democratic, is uh, Georgia's 6th District, obviously, where Lucy McBath uh, knocked off Karen Handel last year, and where Democrats came very close uh, to winning in the 7th District right next door. Uh, I think that there's a, a good chance that Democrats from the way that that district shifting uh, could win that this time around. And you also see opportunities like that emerging in Texas. Uh, There were a bunch of districts that weren't even really seen as being that potentially competitive last year uh, in the the Texas congressional races where uh, the Republican incumbent only ended up winning by maybe 
three or four points, and it wasn't somewhere that Democrats had even necessarily invested a lot of money. Uh, so I do think that in some of these areas that are sort of rapidly shifting politically, Democrats will have some more opportunities. But it's also reality that Democrats will probably lose some of the seats that they picked up last year in some of the districts that were kind of more of a stretch, places like uh, – New York's 22nd congressional district where it was a Trump plus 16 district, but Democrats were able to win because of a really weak Republican candidate. So I'd say if Democrats can break even on the House, they'd probably be pretty happy. They'll probably pick up a few more that they didn't get last time, but they'll also probably lose a few that they did get last time. But uh, to go back to the very first thing you said at the start of that question about Democrats having an 11-point lead on the generic ballot, we really think that the political climate is just as good for Democrats now as it was nine months ago when they had such a good result in the 2018 election. Wow. There's been a lot of debate about whether things are as good for Democrats now as they were then. We pretty much see in our polling that things haven't changed that much and that Democrats are still in a really good position. Okay, uh, one final question related to what you just asked, and then and then I'm going to uh, send it over to Catherine. Uh, but you, you said you see Democrats in a similar position to where they were nine months ago. Are Democratic voters still as engaged and angry as they were nine months ago when they literally crawled to the polls over broken glass. Is the intensity factor there? I think that it is. Uh, we did a bunch of polling uh, privately this week uh, related to Virginia state legislative races, and we asked people, how excited are you to vote this fall? Uh, and in every district we polled, Democrats said that they were a lot more excited to vote than Republicans were. Uh, so I think oh. at a sort of more uh, micro level, that's good news for Democrats in terms of getting control of the Virginia House and Senate in the legislative elections this fall. But I also think it big picture speaks to the fact that Democrats are still fired up. It's not like getting control of the U.S. House all of a sudden – made everything okay in their minds and sort of reduced the sense of urgency, the sense of urgency is definitely still there. Excellent. Thank you for that, Tom. And I'm going to send it to Catherine now. Catherine? Hi, Tom. Nice to have you on the show. Hey, Catherine. Thank I you. I want to go back to something that you and David were talking about, and that's this uh, the Medicare expansion poll that you took. Do you have? Do you recall? And I'm not looking for exact numbers. I'm just curious. Um, you've done those. You've done the um, the Medicare expansion question before, I assume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there, and has have those um, favorables uh, gone up or have they stayed the same? I'm just wondering if um, the state of healthcare has made people more interested in Medicare expansion. Sure. Uh, it's definitely always been popular, uh, but we have seen the numbers increase even more in recent years. It used to be that maybe if we went into one of these states and uh, found voters supporting it by 20 points or so, a lot of the time in polls we're now seeing that more like 30 points or so. Uh, and I think that uh, the Trump administration has sort of increased the sense of urgency 
about that kind of stuff. Uh, the efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act a couple of years ago, I think, really sort of created a greater awareness about uh, what's going on in the sort of healthcare politics and the risk that the Trump administration could do things that would result in a lot fewer people having care, I think has sort of put it on people's radar screens more and uh, sort of centered them around the fact that they actually want more people to have care, not less people to have care. So we have seen that uh, support go up. Well, that's, that's encouraging. I always like to ask you the, the, um, you know, a couple of polls that surprised you or, were um you know more interesting to you the, of the you know handful a hand of the polls that you've done most recently because you always have some insight you know into some surprises that you've seen so have there been any surprises yeah i mean one interesting poll we did recently found that uh voters in south carolina were pretty evenly divided in their uh feelings about donald trump so that's obviously somewhere that hmm you tend to think of as more being a pretty reliably red state, but uh, even there, there's some sort of doubts about Trump. I certainly, you know, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't predict that he would lose or anything like that. But we saw last year, for instance, in South Carolina's first congressional district that Trump won by 11 points, uh, that the Democrat Joe Cunningham was able to uh, pull off an upset and win that seat. So that sort of showed the ability for Democrats, uh, to maybe be surprisingly competitive in some parts of South Carolina. So that was definitely one that I thought was interesting. And then it'll be interesting to see if the state's a little more competitive at the presidential level, if that will uh, open up the possibility of Jamie Harrison and his uh, candidacy for the Senate against Lindsey Graham to maybe get a little bit more traction than you might expect for a Democrat in South Carolina. Uh, Jamie is certainly uh, the strongest person who's made the attempt to run for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina probably in about 15 years now. Uh, it's really been a while since Democrats had a particularly uh, strong person running for the Senate, so it'll be uh, interesting to see if he can get anywhere. So that's certainly an interesting one. Uh, another pretty interesting one is uh, we talk about how Democrats need to win all these Senate races. Uh, one thing that I know a lot of uh, Democrats who uh, follow politics closely wish would happen is that some of these folks running for president would, instead of running for president, run for the Senate uh, in their home yes. states. Amen. Uh, and, <laughs> and we recently did a Democratic primary poll in Colorado, uh, and we found that John Hickenlooper, even in his home state of Colorado, where he just finished up eight years as governor, only 7% of Democrats support him in the primary for president. Uh, so even in his home state, voters are saying, we don't support you for president. Uh, but then we asked in the same poll, well, who would you vote for in the Democratic primary for the Senate? And Hickenlooper gets 44 percent, and nobody else polls over 12 percent. So it's sort of like you can run for president and get blown out even in your own home state, or you can run for the Senate and be the overwhelming favorite for a Senate seat. Uh, so I don't know what he's going to end up doing in terms of having to make that choice. But we, we thought it was interesting how lopsided uh, the difference between the Senate race and the presidential race were for him. Okay. And I have one more question just, uh, you know, off the top of your head. Um, what, do you think we're going to see a real mix up in the um, 
presidential, the Democratic presidential candidates, or, or are we locked into these sort of top four or five? Do you think anybody could come up from the rear and, you know, make some shifts in, in uh, what we're looking at right now? Well, I definitely think that over the next six months, more people will sort of rise to the top uh, than we're seeing right now. Uh, and that's happened with each sort of open presidential contest that we've had in recent years. Uh, for instance, Bernie Sanders was still losing by like 30 points in the polls at this time in 2015 and ended up you know, coming close to fighting Hillary Clinton to a draw. So we certainly saw with him that you can get a lot stronger. Uh, with the Republican contest, for instance, John Kasich at this point was seen as being like the eighth most likely Republican candidate to get the nomination, and he ended up finishing second or third sort of in the big picture of the Republican primary. Right, so, and Jeb Bush was the, was the, you know, expected nominee, really. I don't know if it was yeah. early, but, but, you know, we, so I think everybody sort of presumed he was going to be – I mean, not everyone, but there was a lot of uh, thought that he would – be the nominee yeah and also you know you think about it who would have thought uh in february that pete Buttigieg would end up being one of the top five democratic candidates so uh i think that people will have their moments and move to the top tier but one thing i don't expect to see is a whole lot of movement based on what happened in the debate last week i don't think the debate probably did much to really hurt or help anyone. It was it was kind of a non-event compared to the first debate where you had some clear winners and losers among the top tier. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think some of the lesser known made some may have made some headway, but I don't think it's going to shift those you know one percent beyond you know into, into any like right now into anything higher. But I do think that there were a couple that had their moments unexpectedly. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you very much. I'm going to pass it back to David for any final questions he might have. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. Yes. Well, Tom, I kind of waited to see what they asked about. Then I was going to pick out one last thing to ask you about. And I don't think we hit much on the state of Iowa, and there's a lot going on there. You have a U.S. Senate race, which is probably maybe in that second tier of competitive seats with Joni Ernst being in her first um, reelection campaign. And then also, I'm under the belief that we can look at these national polls for president, and that tells us one thing. But if some candidate maybe is further in the back of the pack, they do really well in Iowa, they're going to slingshot into the you know top-tier category – among that finish, or if in this top tier of, say, four to five candidates, one person pulls away, that's also going to be big. So when you polled Iowa, tell us about your findings of both the Senate race and what the Democratic primary is looking like. Sure. Well, uh, in the Senate race, we find that Joni Ernst is favored for reelection. She has a positive approval rating. It's not like she's wildly popular, but she does have maybe – six or seven percent more voters who approve of her than disapprove of her. So I think she starts out as about a five point favorite for reelection. But, uh, you know, it's certainly possible that the Democratic likely candidate, Teresa Greenfield, could 
uh, really catch fire and prove to be a strong candidate. One thing we know for sure about Iowa is that uh, Donald Trump uh, has not uh, held up very well in his approval numbers there. Uh, He did impressively well there in 2016, won by nine points. But most polls I see find that he's dropped even more in Iowa than he has in the country as a whole, so that even in a state where he won by nine points, he has a negative approval rating there. Uh, And we sort of saw some real-life empirical evidence of that in Iowa's House races last year. It went from being a delegation where Republicans had a three-to-one advantage to being a delegation where Democrats had a three-to-one advantage to Republicans. House seats flipped to the Democratic column, and the one Republican who held on, Steve King, only won re-election by three points in a very heavily Republican district. So uh, I don't necessarily think that just because Democrats had a hard time in Iowa in 2016 means it's off the table, uh, and that certainly uh, means that that Senate race could end up being competitive. The presidential race in the state, uh, it's definitely somewhere where Pete Buttigieg polls uh, uncommonly strong. His numbers in Iowa are a lot better than his national numbers, uh, so that's something to really keep an eye on there. Uh, Joe Biden does lead in Iowa, but it's not nearly as substantial a lead as he has in the national picture. So it will be interesting to see if somebody other than Biden wins Iowa, uh, if that person sort of can leap to being the top choice for people who want to fresher face and see what happens uh, to that person moving forward. Yes, well, we're sure you're going to do some more great work. So, as always, we can't wait to have you on again. Um, but until then, if you just want to kind of share it where people can get your um, press releases, see your social media, just share anything you want to. Sure. Uh, If we do a poll on our own and release the whole thing publicly, the best place to see that is our website, www.publicpolicypolling.com. At this point, most of the polls that we do are for private clients, and usually they don't get released, but occasionally clients do decide to release them so that the public can see them. And uh, those sorts of polls people are most likely to be able to see on our Twitter feed at PPP polls. We try to make sure that any time a client uh, releases a poll we do for them that we get it onto our Twitter account. Yes, we'll look forward to reading more of those polls throughout the weeks to come. Yeah, thank you all so much. Always good to talk with you. Thank, thank you. you, Tom. Yep. Yes, take that was Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling. Always good to have him on with so many incredible numbers because they're so expansive and all their work, and they also do some innovative things. We really didn't get a chance to talk about that, but I know they did one with Megan Rapinoe versus Donald Trump, but they always kind of point out some of those uh, ironic things through their polling as well. Um, Well, guys, we've got time for one more topic, and even though we probably didn't do uh, justice to the last one, I think we'll know where the the, the, um, primary race is going by next week, but something that's probably – just as intriguing is the House retirements on the GOP side. It's been a good number of them, and that's probably causing a problem for Republicans. But then if you look at some of who these folks are, it's kind of um, disconcerting in another way. You have uh, currently 13 women serving in the House of Representatives as Republicans, and Martha Roby, one of those 13, 
is saying she's not going to return. And then you only had one African-American member of the Republican um, House caucus, Will Hurd, and he said he's not coming back. Also, his district is very, very close. Um, Tim, kind of what's your thoughts on all these Republican uh, retirements? Well, it, let me start by saying it, it's it's not an alarming number yet, even though out of the eight announced retirements, six of them have happened in the last two weeks. At this time in 2018, uh, something like 15 Republicans had already announced that they were uh, retiring. Uh, I guess what's more alarming is, is who they happen to be. You mentioned Will Hurd. You mentioned uh, Martha Roby. Uh, there's another woman, by the way, Susan Brooks of Indiana, which is interesting because she was in charge of House recruit, recruitment of female <laughs> candidates for next year, and she has announced that, that she was retiring. Uh, you mentioned how close Will Hurd's seat was. Well, Cook Political, as soon as he announced he was retiring, moved it from toss-up to lean Democrat. So um, uh, Pete Olson out there in Texas, three of these people were in Texas. That's why Tom brought Texas up. Uh, Pete Olson was another one that's been moved to toss-up. Um so um, it, it, it's, it's interesting to, to be uh, looking at. You You can also go ahead and add, add Justin Amash, who has switched parties from Re- Republican to Independent, so the GOP lost another one there for now. And uh, Greg Ford up in Montana, who has their at-large seat, is going to try to um, um, move up. Um, to um, the governorship uh, out there, I believe. And so his seat will be open. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's 10. The Democrats, on the other hand, have only lost two. And one of those is running uh, for the U.S. Senate out in – where is it? Where is it? New Mexico. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another um, one, um, Jose Serrano. Now he he's been like in in Congress up up in New York for like I don't know thirty years. Uh, he has Parkinson's, unfortunately, and he's going to have to retire for that reason. And he won his district with ninety six percent of the vote. So it looks <laughs> a little more ominous for Republicans right now than it looks for. Uh, for for Democrats, but but we're not to panic mode for Republicans yet, David. Well, and, and one thing that I, I noticed that you mentioned, and Catherine, you can talk to this, is, is the House just went on their summer recess. They take summer quite late. Um, it lasts to like mid-September, uh, so it's kind of odd. But they think that some of these members will go home and remember mm-hmm. how much they like home and then decide not to come back. Another name we had mentioned that was also a very close seat that's uh, here in our state, Rob Woodall, has said he's not mm-hmm. coming back. And that seat uh, was, you know, kind of ran into overtime, if you will, counting the votes. Uh, Catherine, what's your thoughts? 
Well, I, first I want to say that in many parts of the country, September is still considered summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in school world. <laughs> I know. Well, when I was in school, we never started school until September in grade there school. There we go. Anyway. There we go. Um, well, I think it's going to, like you said, I think that um, the summer break will may may give some give us some more uh, retirements, and we we also have a lot more time to go. Like they could wait until you know the end of the year still to uh, make decisions. So I think it it seems to bode well for Democrats, and uh, no surprise really that these Republicans don't want to run uh, along with uh, Donald Trump. I think that that may be part of it is that. It's going to be difficult for, especially someone like Hurd, who I think doesn't agree with everything about Donald Trump, and it's it's a little bit of a balancing act to decide: well, am I going to attach myself to him and get support from him, or am I going to be more independent from him and then worry about the possibility of a primary opponent? So, I can see the attraction. Yes, and in Hurd's case, again. I mean he. He was somebody that spoke up pretty openly. Uh, Tim Alberta, who just did a really fascinating book um, chronicling the last, say, almost decade of Republican politics, called him the future of the GOP politics, and he's not even going to run hard to be the future, which I I understand what Tim Alberta was saying. That's who the future should be or should be a part of their future so they would have one. Um, And then, you know, Martha Roby, there's someone she spoke up at times as much as you're going to find from somebody from South Alabama uh, against Donald Trump, and she's leaving too. So they're saying there's kind of a trend in this group where people are just – they just don't think they can fight within their own caucus anymore. So they're just leaving, and if those voices get replaced by folks that won't stand up or just flat-out agree with him, there's going to be less pushback, and that's going to normalize a lot of his behavior, which is kind of a sad state of affairs. I mean I'll be honest. if if those seats are going to be held by Republicans, I'd rather them be held by Republicans like Will Her, like Martha Roby, who will stand up at times to him and show that not all Republicans condone some of these outrageous statements and actions he takes at times. Um, but we will see, and I think as the weeks go on, there may be more to discuss, and we know the primary race and other things that we discussed tonight will, um, you know, flesh their way along and so we'll keep discussing it until then it's been okay. the Cozy Vine good night guys we are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America with the Lucky Land Slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky <gasps> No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.